Shalom, everyone. Welcome to the Science of the Covenant. Before we get started, remember, Passover service, April the 6th and 12th at 5 p.m. That's this week. It's coming up this week. Uh, this Thursday, April the 6th, we're going to be having Passover services as we kick off the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So again, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, April the 6th at 5 p.m. And next week, the 12th, as we close it out, also at 5 p.m. Question for all the Mishpukah and our listeners and viewers. Have you gotten 11 out of your house yet? We almost there. We have a couple of days, so you, if you one of those like me that sometimes forget, I put it in my phone as a reminder so it'll pop up. So I'm trying to get the leaven out of my house, search for everything that has leaven to clear it out, throw it out, and prepare as we prepare for Passover and the Feast of Leaven Bread. If you don't know, I am Boyce Washington. On the other side of me is my dad, the pastor, Richard Washington. If you have any questions or comments while our podcast is live, feel free to email us your comments and your questions at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. If you are in watching YouTube on a computer, tablet, or even uh, your phone device, and you have chat open, you can also put your comments and questions in the chat. So uh, either science... Uh, science of the covenant at gmail.com the information is right at the bottom on the ticker of the screen or you can send your message in the chat also if you like this podcast please give us a like give us a thumbs up hit that little like button for us we very much appreciate it so if you know we have been doing the study the pastor has been getting us the study of the science of the sacrifice and today we'll be going to part 12 so with that, I'm going to turn it over to the pastor. It's over to you. Okay, thank you very much, Boris. What we want to do is continue <clears throat> where we uh, stopped last week, and that was on the atonement phase four. So we want to start on that particular phase today. So as we get started, let us have a word of prayer Eternal Father, as we look to you at this time and your son, Yeshua, the Messiah, that as we go through the scriptures, that you would lead our minds to the things, Lord, that you would have us to know. And after we have finished today, may we be the better for it. Bless my host. Bless each person who listens. Bless me as I deliver. And most of all, bless each one of us that as we fellowship together, we may be able to get the blessing that you would have us to have. And when this podcast is over and we continue to go through the Sabbath, may we be able to reflect upon these things that pertain to our salvation, that when you do ultimately come, that we can meet you in peace, is my prayer in Yeshua's name. And for his dear sake, I do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. amen. Okay, so as I pointed out, <clears throat> we want to deal with uh, the atonement phase part four. And in this fourth phase, we experience both the forgiveness of sins and having them transferred to our Savior, Yeshua, who is our innocent, pure, and spotless Lamb of Elohim. And his innocency, his purity, and spotlessness, and 
are transferred to him. It was through this act of atonement that we set we are set free from our sins, transgressions, and are at liberty to go from our priest, which is Yeshua, sinless. We are freed from our life of sin. And when we are freed from our life of sin, such act as this is imputed righteousness. So when we go to Yeshua and we confess to him our sins, then our sins is transferred to him. His righteousness is transferred to us. And this is what we are calling just justification by faith. So when we are free from our life of sin, this is imputed righteousness, which we call justification by faith. Once we are set free after Yeshua has given us a new life of righteousness in exchange for our life of sinfulness, he frees us to go and to practice righteousness. So what we want to look at is a text found in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9. Now here's what it says. It says, whosoever is born of Elohim does not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. He cannot sin because he is born of Elohim. Now, we are told in this text, if we are born of Elohim, we do not commit sin. Now, what I want us to do is look at this word that they have in the ninth verse of the third chapter of 1 John. It says, whoever is born of Elohim doth. And that's the word we want to look at the word doth or the word do. And this word do comes from the Greek word preso. P-R-A-S-S-O. That's a Greek word, preso. And it means to do or it means to practice. So here it isn't speaking about not sinning at all after being redeemed but not practicing sin. So if we could read it, this same verse and put the word practice in there, we'll see what it's talking about. It said, whoever is born of Elohim does not practice, does not practice uh, committing sin. Okay, so that's what it's saying because people say that once you accept Yeshua, you can't sin. No, that's not what this is saying. It is saying that you do not practice sin. See, the difference between those who are saints and those who are sinners is that when a saint finds out that he's doing something wrong, he does not continue to practice that. He straightened it up and continued to do what Elohim has told him to do, whereas a sinner, they find that they are wrong. They'll continue to practice the same thing over and over. So what it is saying, he that is born, whosoever is born of Elohim does not practice sin, 
for his seed remain in him and he cannot sin because he is born of Elohim. So what it is basically saying is that when we are born of him, we have the seed and we continue to practice righteousness after he has forgiven us of our sins. So here it isn't speaking about sinning at all, not sinning at all after having been redeemed, but practicing sin. So <clears throat> for each of us who has been set free from sin by the atoning blood of Yeshua, we are to continue to both study into the righteousness of Yeshua and to practice it, such an act as this is referenced to as imparted righteousness, which we call sanctification by faith. Now, we know that justification is attained in the moment we accept the atoning life of Yeshua. And then after we accept the atoning life of Yeshua, then we have what you call the sanctification. And sanctification is attained over the remaining time we have on this side of eternity. So when we talk about justification by righteousness, what we are looking at is the moment we accept that pardon by Yeshua, he counts us righteous. That's why they call it righteousness by faith. And righteousness by faith is justification and justification happens in a moment. The moment you accept his sacrifice for yourself, you are automatically made righteous through him. And the next step that you have is faith by righteousness. The faith in righteousness, which is the which is the atoning act of righteousness, which helps us to daily continue to come up to what he wants us to come up to. He justified us, and, and when he justified us, he took the life of his son, gave it to us, and when he looks at the life of his son covering us with his robe of righteousness, he says we are all right with him. But while we were wearing that robe of righteousness, he is saying that daily for the rest of our life, we are to continue to study and to practice righteousness as long as we are here before the second coming of Yeshua. So he justifies us and make us right. And then he says, that which I've made you, I want you to practice each day so that you can come up on what I want you to come up on. So we have justification that makes us right and sanctification that helps us to continue to practice that which we have, are coming up to. Now, that is the fourth phase. So the fourth phase gives us forgiveness and it helps us to practice righteousness after we are freed from our sins through forgiveness. Now we want to look at the atonement phase five. In this phase, in this fifth phase, Yeshua, our priest, performs at least two ministries with his lifeblood. The first ministry he performs with his sacrificial blood as the Lamb of Elohim takes place in the courtyard of the heavenly sanctuary. In this ministry, he will make some applications of his blood 
to the articles of furnishings and in certain areas. And we reference this courtyard application of the sacrificial blood of the lamb. And we call this, we call this ministry the outer appropriation of the atonement life of the Savior. So we want to look at that, the outer appropriation of the atonement life. In this first ministry in the courtyard, the priest would take the sacrificial blood of the lamb and wash all of the blood in the water of the brazen laver in the court of the earthly sanctuary tabernacle. In this, in like manner, our priest Yeshua took his atonement life as the lamb of Yah and cleansed his life in the water of the Jordan River in the courtyard of the heavenly sanctuary tabernacle. We reference such a ministry as this as the water and the blood washing, which we call the aqua hemo immersion. So when we talk about the aqua, we talk about water. And when we talk about hemo, we're talking about blood. So we call it the aqua hemo immersion, which is the water and the blood immersion. So we want to look at this aqua hemo immersion. Now, let me just explain this. Now, when we looked at the earthly sanctuary and when the earthly sanctuary was made Moses had a courtyard and the courtyard was surrounded by a linen fence all the way around and on the east side in the center of there you had a gate of multicolors of purple scarlet blue and white and you go through that gate and when you got into the courtyard of the sanctuary there were two uh, types of there was two types of furniture in, in that courtyard. And as we look at those types of furniture in the courtyard, what we see here is that those two pieces of furniture were the brazen laver and the altar. So you had the brazen, brazen laver and you have the altar the brazen altar. So those two pieces of furniture, they were in the courtyard and they were made out of brass. Now you remember when we go into the sanctuary, all of the furnishings in there, they were made out of, they were overlaid with gold, but the ones in the outer court, they were made out of brass. So you had the brazen laver and then you had the brazen altar of burnt offerings. So when we talk about the water and the blood immersion in the, in the <clears throat> aqua hemo immersion, the blood represents life. So the life of Yeshua is cleansed by the water of the Jordan River, which is the antitypical brazen laver located uh, on the earth. So what we are looking at is that when you look at the earthly sanctuary, it had a brazen laver, and it also had an altar. So this would mean that the heavenly sanctuary had to have an outer court as well. But what we find is that the outer court for the heavenly sanctuary was not in heaven, it was on earth. 
Why do we say that? Because when Yeshua was on earth, he was both baptized and he was crucified on earth. His baptism took place in the Jordan River, which is equated with the brazen labor that was in the court of the earthly sanctuary. And when he was crucified, he was crucified on earth, which the cross represented the brazen altar. So the heavenly court connects heaven and earth together through the baptism of Yeshua and also through his crucifixion. So when we think about the heavenly sanctuary and its outer court, the heavenly sanctuary tabernacle is in heaven, but his outer court is on earth. And the Jordan River where he was baptized was the brazen labor and where he was crucified was the altar of burnt offerings. So if we can keep that picture in mind as we go through this study, then we'll understand that when we talk about the labor of what Yeshua washed in, we're talking about the Jordan River. And when we talk about his crucifixion, we are talking about the brazen labor as it is uh, the antitypical cross that he died on. So with that said, the typical brazen labor in the courtyard of the earthly sanctuary tabernacle is the antitypical brazen labor of the heavenly sanctuary tabernacle, which is the Jordan River by which John the Baptist immersed Yeshua. Now let us turn into the book of Luke. And in the book of Luke, we what we want to look at is in Luke, we want to look at chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, we want to look at verse number 21. Luke chapter 23, verse 21. Now, here we look and we see in verse 21 of the third chapter, it says, it says, now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Yeshua, also being baptized and praying, the heaven was open. Okay. So in other words, John the Baptist, he baptized Yeshua. Yeshua gave his innocent, pure, holy, and righteous life to us. And in turn, we give to him our guilty, impure, unholy, and unrighteous life to him. John the Baptist said of Yeshua, when he came to him to be immersed by him, let us see what he said. Let us turn to uh, the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, we want to use chapter 1. And in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we want to look at verse 29. And the Bible says this is what happened when Yeshua came to John to be baptized. And the Bible says, And the next day seeth Yeshua, and the next day John seeth Yeshua coming unto him, and he saith, Behold the Lamb of Elohim, which taketh away the sin of the world. So he said, Behold the Lamb of Elohim, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now this act of immersion is the cleansing away of the life of transgression of our sinful life in the past. You see, when we put our sins upon Yeshua, 
that made him sinful and made us righteous. And once having been cleansed of the sinful life by the water, his life is now ready to be offered up as a sin offering on the typical brazen altar of burnt offerings. However, the antitypical brazen altar of burnt offering is the cross where Yeshua was crucified for the world, just as the Jordan River is the antitypical brazen labor, so is the cross the antitypical altar of burnt offerings. And they both are located upon the earth. As we have pointed out, the courtyard of the heavenly sanctuary is on this earth. So when we want to look at the heavenly sanctuary is out of court, is right here on this earth. Now, what we want to look at is now we want to turn to Ephesians, the book of the Ephesians, and we want to look at chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. And in this particular uh, passage, we want to look at verses 26 through 27. Ephesians. Chapter 5, and we're going to consider verses 26 through 27. And here the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Ephesian people, says in verse 26, that they might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So when he says that he might sanctify it and cleanse it, he's talking the it is referring to his church, his people. The call out assembly of the ecclesia, which is his people. He said that he may clean, that he may sanctify and cleanse the church with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, having not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So when we talk about the water, we're talking about the word. It is the word that cleanses us up. So what we notice in the ministry in the courtyard of the heavenly sanctuary tabernacle, which is located here on earth, is that Yeshua was immersed first, then he was crucified. Does this order have any salvational significance? It does when we consider that Yeshua was to be our sacrifice. He had to be clean without spot or wrinkle or blemish. He had to be the perfect and sinless sacrifice from the start of his ministry upon this earth. He had to be clean. He had to be spotless. We may ask the question, why would Yeshua need to be immersed since he was already sinless. There are two basic reasons why this should be. So let us consider them. First and foremost, he was demonstrating the way we as sinners must go in order to be cleansed of sin. Yes. Yeshua was without sin. He never sinned. 
even when he came to be baptized, we want to notice what John had to say about Yeshua. And this time we want to go to the, the book of Matthew. And in Matthew, we want to look at chapter 3. And in that third chapter, we want to look at verses 14 and 15. In other words, we are saying if Yeshua was baptized before he was crucified, why did he need to be baptized and when he never sinned? And as I pointed out to you, the reason for that was that he was showing us the way of salvation, not that he needed it, but he was showing if we're going to get rid of our sins, we have to follow in his footsteps. And his footsteps was to get baptized. And when we get baptized, then like he washed away the sins that was on him from us, we can also have our sins washed away. So let us turn here and look at the third chapter of Matthews. And we started with verse number 14 through 15. And here it says, But John forbid him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and cometh thou to me. And Yeshua answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. So John the Baptist even recognized that he was sinless. He said, now, Yeshua, you coming to be baptized with me, he said, in actuality, I should really be coming to you to be baptized because you don't have any sin. So Yeshua said, in a, in a way, I know I haven't sinned, John, but he says, suffer to be so now, John, for thus cometh us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, what he was saying to John, yes, you're right, I haven't sinned, but I'm trying to show the sinners the way to salvation. He says, so suffer me to be baptized by you, and if you suffer it, then those who have sinned would actually know the path to walk in order to get rid of their sin. That's why I'm being baptized. So even when he came to John to be immersed, he said to Jesus, I have need to be baptized of you and cometh you to me. Here John recognized that Yeshua was the pure, innocent, righteous lamb of Elohim. However, Yeshua had to answer John by saying, even though I'm spotless, I'm trying to get others who will follow me to know the way of salvation, of having their sins washed away. Now, the second basic reason for the immersion of Yeshua is that both the priests and the sacrifice must be clean. Okay, let us look at these two aspects. Okay, we're going to look at these two aspects. You got to look at the priests have to be clean and the sacrifice has to be clean. Okay, now we want to turn to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we want to look at And in the 30th chapter of Exodus, we want to read a few verses there. And we want to start with Exodus chapter 30. And I want to start with verse 17. And uh, we want to read down to 21. Exodus chapter 17, not 17, but Exodus chapter 30, starting with verse 17. And here in the 17th verse of the 30th chapter of Exodus, it says, And Yah spake unto Moses, saying, Thou shalt also make 
a laver of brass and his foot also of brass to wash withal, and thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein, for Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto Yah. So they shall wash their hands after their and their feet, that they die not, and it shall be a statue forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. So Elohim says twice in this passage that they should wash lest they die. He said that twice. In other words, what Elohim is saying is sin is being represented by contamination and pollution. And when they were unclean, that was sinful to be unclean. So if they were to come before him unclean, he said, at the point of death. Because the wages of sin is death. So they had to make sure that they were clean before they ministered around the altar and before they went into the sanctuary, because if they didn't, it was at the point of death, they could be dropped dead. If you remember uh, Nadab and Abihu, they offered a strange fire and they were struck dead in the presence of Elohim because they were offering the wrong type of offering. So he is saying the same thing about them when they ministered, that they had to be clean and that labor was to help them to wash their hands and their feet that when they ministered before Elohim, that they were clean and pure. So when we look at that in the Levitical priesthood, the priests were to wash themselves in the water of the brazen labor and his foot. See, the brazen labor had a container with water, but it also had a foot around the labor that they could wash their feet as well. So, so in the Levitical priesthood, the priests were to wash themselves in the water of the brazen laver and his foot. Their hands and their feet were to be clean. We reference this washing as the priestly washing, and we call this washing the officiating cleansing. So when the priests washed themselves, it was like they were officiating a cleansing. So when we look at that officiating of the cleansing, in the officiating cleansing, we have the removal of any residue or debris from one's person that would render one unclean in any way. They couldn't, the priest couldn't be dirty in any way. If the priests were dirty, they would be struck dead. Just as the typical priest in the earthly sanctuary tabernacle would wash their feet and hands to be clean of any blood or contaminants which would make them defile. Even so, our high priest, Yeshua, the antitypical priest in the heavenly sanctuary tabernacle would be free from any life, behavior, or practices which were a, of a sinful nature. So our high priest, Yeshua, in every aspect, in every walk of his life, 
He had to be perfect. He had to be clean in every behavior. He had to be spotless in every practice that he performed. So this is why he was able to go down to the Jordan to demonstrate to us that we have to wash away our sins. Moreover, the washing of water can also be looked upon as the cleansing of the word. Now let us turn to Psalms, the 119th division. Psalms 119. And here in Psalms 119, we want to look at verse number nine. Psalms 119, verse nine. Now here's what it, what it says. The Bible says in the ninth verse of Psalms 119, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereunto according to the word. So the Bible is saying here, if we want to cleanse our ways, we have to take heed to the word. As I pointed out earlier, when we talk about the word, the word represents the water. And as the word represents the water, we saw in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter five, and we were looking at the fact that the Bible was saying in Ephesians chapter five, that he would wash the church in the washing of the water of the word. So the word and the water are symbolizing a cleansing. So if we want to cleanse it according to what Paul is giving us here, then Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 25, chapter five, that is, and we are looking at uh, verse number 26. It says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So as Yeshua, our priest, officiates on our behalf, he is a priest without any iniquity, sin, or transgression. He is a spotless priest of Yah who officiates for us in the heavenly sanctuary tabernacle before his Father. From, from Scripture, we are told that we should be a, of a certain way. Okay, let us now turn to Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, we want to look at chapter 52, Isaiah chapter 52. Now here in Isaiah chapter 52, we want to look at verse, verse 11, Isaiah 52, 11. Now here, what Isaiah 52, 11 tells us. He says here that he said depart ye depart ye go ye out from thence touch not touch no unclean thing go ye out of the midst of her be ye clean that bear the vessels of Yah you see it was the priest who dealt with the vessels of Yah in the ancient Israel. It was the priests that dealt with those vessels. And Elohim said, if you're gonna come into my sanctuary and deal with my vessels, you have to be clean. And he said, be ye clean that bear the vessels of Yah. 
So the priests had to be clean in the earthly tabernacle, which also translate that the antitypical priest, which is Yeshua, he also had to be clean. Even though he didn't sin, he took on our sins, but he showed us the way that we must be clean. Okay, so that was the priest. But we said it was another ministry. Now that we have looked at the priestly washing, which is the officiating cleansing, let us now consider the washing of the sacrifice, which we reference to as the sacrificial washing of which we call the atoning cleansing. So we want to look at this atoning cleansing. How does he work out the atoning cleansing? All right, let us turn to Leviticus. I'm going to look at chapter 1 in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 1. And in that first chapter of Leviticus, we want to look at verses 10 through 13. This is Leviticus chapter 1, 10 through 13. In other words, there was a cleansing ritual for the priest. Now we are looking at the cleansing ritual for the sacrifice. Now here it says in verse 10 of the first chapter of Leviticus, and if his offering be of the flocks, namely the, of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring it a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the side of the altar northward before Yah, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall sprinkle his blood round about upon the altar, and he shall cut in, into his pieces with his head and his fat, and the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar. But he shall wash the inwards and the legs with water, and the priest shall bring it all and burn it upon the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto Yah. So we see here that even before they could put the sacrifice on the altar, according to Leviticus, they had to wash it and make it clean. So when he went on the altar, it was clean. So as we look at the atoning cleansing, in the atoning cleansing, we have the removal of any residue or contaminants which would make the sacrifice unclean in any way, just as the typical sacrifice in the earthly sanctuary tabernacle was washed. We also are understanding that when they washed the blood away, which would make it defile, even so our sacrifice, Yeshua, the antitypical sacrifice in the heavenly tabernacle would be free from any life of sinfulness or transgression which was of a corrupt nature. So just as the priest had to wash the sacrifice and make it clean, then even our sacrifice, who was not only the high priest, but he was also our sacrifice, he had to be clean just like the priest. Furthermore, the washing of water may also be understood, as we have said, 
in Psalms 119 and 9 and Ephesians 5, 26 and 27, that if we want to cleanse our ways, we take heed to the word. And in Ephesians, it says, we are washed and made clean by the washing of the water of the word. So when we look at the water, the water is the word. As Yeshua, our sacrifice, atone on our behalf, he is our sacrifice without any sin, transgression, or trespass. He is the perfect lamb of Yah who atones for us in the heavenly sanctuary tabernacle before his father. Now, let us turn to 1 John. Let us turn to 1 John. And in 1 John, we want to use chapter 1 and verse 7. In other words, just as the priest had to be cleansed, so did the sacrifice have to be cleansed, okay? Now, here the Bible says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, the Bible says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Yeshua, the Messiah, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So it is the blood of the sacrifice of the lamb through Yeshua's blood that we are made clean. So what we have seen here is that in phase four and five of the forgiveness of sin, and then when we deal with that, that fifth phase of the immersion of the blood and the water, the blood represents life. So when our life is gone down into the water, then the water washes away that blood or wash away the sinful life. And as a result, when Yeshua went through that, even though he was sinless, he was showing us the steps in order that salvation may be performed for us. Father in heaven, as we have looked through these particular things of the rituals of the earthly sanctuary and how they apply to the things that were done by Yeshua to show us the way of salvation, that as we walk in the way that he has laid out, that our lives may be pure and we may be justified and sanctified in such a way that as we continue to practice righteousness day by day, we can have sanctified lives to be able to correspond with the justified life of Yeshua, who is our high priest and sacrifice, that when he does come and see what we have done is according to the way that he did it, that we can be saved in your eternal kingdom is our prayer in Yeshua's name. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. And amen. Amen. So uh, you were saying that Yahusha was baptized in the water before he was crucified. Mm -hmm. And what was the, again, the reasoning for that? Uh, it's uh, showing us the way of salvation. Uh -huh. uh, it's, it's a more, I'm going to be dealing with this uh, next week. Uh, I'm going I'm to be bridging uh, some more reasons why that is. But what, what it is, is that in the earthly sanctuary, when the priest had a sacrifice, mm -hmm. before they put it on the altar to be you be uh, a sacrifice, which represents the crucifixion of Yeshua. Then if, then if the sacrifice back then had to be washed before it was put on the altar, uh -huh. 
then Yeshua had to be watched before he, he was crucified. Wow. Okay. So you said that if the mm-hmm. sacrifice, the sacrifice has to be watched before it was put on the altar to be sacrificed. Mm-hmm. So Yahushua had yeah. to be washed before he was going to be sacrificed. He was crucified. Okay. Right. All right. But uh, like I said, we'll be dealing more with that to really see the, the uh, a, a lot more understanding of why that had to be. So the also the one who's doing the crucifying, like the priest, they also had to be cleaned and washed uh, prior. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm, yeah. Like he was saying that he said it twice. He said, if you're not clean, uh, you could be put to death if you want to clean. Uh-huh. So the priest had to be clean, too. And since Yeshua was both the priest and the sacrifice, uh-huh. then he had to be clean. And plus, the sacrifice had to be clean. Okay. So that's what that baptism in the Jordan River was about. And then uh, we have a question um, mm-hmm. that someone has emailed, and it reads, I heard someone praying, and they said, Thank you, dear Father, for dying on the cross for us. Doesn't First Timothy 6.16 tell us that the Father cannot die, therefore it had to be the Son that died? All right, what text are you using? First Timothy, what? Uh, chapter six, verse sixteen. Okay, let's go to that text. First Timothy, six sixteen. All right, let's see. All right, here we are. Let me see, six sixteen. only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto whom no man has seen nor can see to whom the honor and power everlasting amen okay repeat that question again okay he said i heard someone praying and they said thank you dear father for dying on the cross for us doesn't First Timothy six sixteen tell us that the Father cannot die, therefore it had to be the Son that died? Well, that that that's correct. Uh, you're perfectly correct, unless they meant that the excruciating pain that went through the Father's heart when His Son did die, it was like Him going through such pain to see His Son, like in the Book of Isaiah says. He shall see the trial of his soul. But no, uh, the father cannot die. Mm-hmm. And this is why uh, his son had to come. And because his son was an obedient son mm-hmm. and he was willing to die, then this meant that if man sinned, then the covenant that they had made before the world was that if man sinned, he could die in his place. Then they had someone to die. So we, we thank Elohim for his son, and not only just for his son, but for a faithful son who was willing to die when we did sin. But you are correct. The father cannot die, so the sin had to, uh, so sin had to be atoned for by his son. Okay. And we have another question uh, from a listener, and it reads, Yahusha is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Why mm-hmm. do
do we have him doing everything the Levitical priest did? Uh, I'm not sure he did everything according to the Levitical priesthood. Uh, in other words, the Levitical priesthood did uh, point out to us mm-hmm. uh, what the plan of salvation was about, but the order in which he came, he came on the order of Melchizedek. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as we know, according to scriptures, Melchizedek was a title. Meli, uh, uh, Melchizedek, Melchizedek means king, mm-hmm. and Zadik means righteousness. So you're talking about the, the king of righteousness. Mm-hmm. That was the title that he, he had. Mm-hmm. So what Yeshua came on that order because if you understand the order in which he came, then you recognize that it was not just the Levitical priesthood. He he ordained the Levitical priesthood. But if you read in the book of, uh, uh, I think, it in, well, it's in the book of uh, Hebrews, it, it, it talks about the order in which Yeshua came. Mm-hmm. Now, if you, it's a number of places. It's a number of places you can read this in the book of Hebrews. But here it says in the book of Hebrews, uh, let us turn to uh, chapter, uh, let me see. Well, we could turn to, I believe it's chapter four. I think that's where a lot of the priestly uh, information is given in the book of Hebrews that we can look at. Okay. Let me see. I believe it's chapter four. If not, I know. Uh, let me see. Well, let's look at verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14 said, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heaven, Yeshua, the son of Elohim, let us hold fast our profession of faith. Okay. So he's pointing out here that he is our high priest. Okay. But if we read on further in the same book of Hebrews, we also find uh, that he didn't just come on the Levitical priesthood, but also Melchizedek. So in chapter five, let us read this. It says, yeah, we'll start with verse three. It said, and by reason hereof, he ought as for the people, so also he himself to offer for sins. It said, and no man taketh his honor unto himself, but he that is called of Elohim, as was Aaron. So also the Messiah glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but that he said unto him, thou art my son, today have I begotten thee, as he said also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, okay? So he's saying he came on the order of Melchizedek, okay? Then if you read again in chapter six of the book of Hebrews, it says, whether the forerunner is for us entered 
even Yeshua made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter seven of the same book of Hebrews, it says the king, he calls him the king of righteousness. He said, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, the priest of the most high, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter, the king of the kings, and he blessed him. So what it is pointing out, he did fulfill a lot of things in the antitypical service that he performed because see, the Levitical priesthood, they did certain things, but it pointed toward the Messiah. Yes, he did fulfill those expectations of the Levitical priesthood, but there were much of what he did that corresponds with Melchizedek's order. Okay, now, what what were some of the things that uh, that Melchizedek's order could do that Levitical priesthood couldn't do? Okay, let us point this out in the book of Revelation because this, this may uh, give more light to why he came after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, now we want to turn to uh, uh, Revelation chapter 1. And in Revelation chapter 1, uh, we want to look at verse, let me see. Uh, okay, we're going to look at verse 6. Revelation 1, 6 says, it says, And hath made us kings and priests unto Elohim and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, now what is this saying? He is saying, if we look back at the fifth verse, let's go back to verse five. Because verse six is saying, he made us kings and priests. Okay, now when we go to verse five, notice what verse five says. It said, and from Yeshua, the Messiah, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sin in his own blood. Okay. Now, when he washed us from sin in his blood, that made us a part of the royal family of heaven. And when we became a part of the royal family of heaven, he said, if you've accepted God's blood, his death to atone for your life, I'm going to make you a king and a priest or a priestess. And a queen, okay? He said, that's what I'm going to do for you. How was that possible? Well, it, it was not possible for the Levitical priesthood. Why was that? Because in the Levitical priesthood, if you recall, that only people who could become priests under the Levitical priesthood was those who were in the family of the Levites or that special family that were called to deal with the sanctuary. So you had the firstborn and you had the Levitical priesthood. They were the only ones that could be priests. You couldn't be priests under that. Even though Yeshua fulfilled a lot of that stuff. But yeah, when he took on the order of Melchizedek, what was he saying? He was saying this. Under the Aaronic priesthood, the only people that could be priests were the, Lev the Levites. Mm. And then even with that, a Levite priest could only be a priest. He couldn't be a king. He wasn't a king. He could only be a priest. But when it came to Melchizedek, he was a priest 
and a king. And by being a priest and a king, and he took on, and Yeshua took that order on, that meant when he died, he opened up the priesthood to us that when we were covered in his blood and made pure, he made us not only kings, but he also made us priests. Because in days of old, if you were a king and you were not a priest, you could not officiate in the sanctuary. There was one king that wanted to officiate in the sanctuary, and the priest told him he couldn't, and he insisted on it, and they took him and put him out of the temple, and then Elohim struck that king down with leprosy because no king could act as a priest. If you were a priest, you were a priest. If you were king, you were king. But when he died on that cross, he made us kings and priests, and that was not on the Levitical priesthood after Aaron. It was on the Melchizedek priesthood that we were made kings and priests. No, he didn't just use the Levitical priesthood. He was trying to show lessons from that, but he came on the order of Melchizedek. So you said with that, he uh, when he came on that order, he ended up making us also priests and kings. Yeah, priests and kings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Now, I got to ask. Mm -hmm. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that. See, up until the time of Zechariah, see, when Zechariah, uh, when Elizabeth and Zechariah had John, mm -hmm. they were of the they were also of the Levitical priesthood, and up until that point, nobody else could be priest but Leviticus. But 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 for the Levites, you weren't in that family, you couldn't be a priest. But mm -hmm. when Yeshua, who was not from the tribe of Levi, he was from the tribe of Judah, but he came on an order, Melchizedek. So when he died, he brought every believer into the priesthood. Mm. Aaron's priesthood couldn't do that, but his did because he came on Melchizedek's priesthood, and he was a Canaanite king, so he was bringing Gentiles and everybody who believed in the name of Yeshua. Mm -hmm. He was making them kings and priests. So one of the questions I have, too, because the verse says kings and priests. Mm -hmm. So is it just something for the men? Because it doesn't state priestess and queens. So is it just... Yeah, well, I... Mm -hmm. No, go ahead. Finish your question. So is it just something that a man can do? Or is it one of those things where the kings and priests also pertains to women also? Okay. Uh, let's keep one thing in mind, that in the Hebrew, mm -hmm. uh, even though that was in the New Testament, but mm -hmm. uh, you can still the book of Revelation can still be written in Hebrew, but we must understand that the uh, Hebrew language is a male language. Okay. It's male-dominated, mm -hmm. okay? So uh, when, it, when it says uh, the male, just like some people, when they come to Passover, they say uh, the Bible says that all males should appear before Elohim. Mm -hmm. But that did not that did not mean that the women could not come. Because as you know, in the Bible, Mary and Joseph, they came together with Yeshua to the Passover. Yeah. But it's a male-dominated language in the sense that if you had 99 women mm -hmm. in a room and one male, when they refer to it, they would say he rather than she mm -hmm. because it's a male-dominated language. Now, if you had 99 females and no male, they would say she. Mm -hmm. But if one man came in that room, they would say he. So what we are looking at is basically 
that Yeshua said in heaven, we'll neither be marrying or given in marriage. We will be as the angels. Now, what is that? Mm -hmm. uh, well, how are the angels? Well, the angels, they don't marry or give in marriage. So yeah. that means that when women are redeemed, it doesn't mean, I mean, when men are redeemed and it says he should save all mankind, that's generic. That means man and woman. Can we really believe that Abraham is really going to be saved without Sarah mm. or Isaac, mm -hmm. without Rebecca or Rachel? I mean, or, or, or Jacob without Rachel? No. It only means it's a male-dominated language, but male and female will be saved. Mm -hmm. So it's not limiting it because of the sexual orientation, just like this, just like when Apostle Paul, what he said, he said, as neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, he said they all are one in Yeshua. In other words, he is saying when we accept him, then the Jew can't say it because I'm over the Gentile. If the Jew accept him and the Gentile accept him, they are both accepted in him. Mm -hmm. And when the male or female accepted him, he said they are accepted in him. So when I said queen and priestess, what I'm saying basically is they all will be saved. But since the language is a dominant male language, that's why we deal with it that way, not that the woman cannot be, because whenever Elohim gave the commandments, who did he give them to? He gave them to the men. Mm -hmm. And and women are a part of men, but they are the women with the womb. But Eve was a man. She was a man with the womb, but she was a part of the of the uh, uh, of the humanity that we call Adam, because when you read about uh, 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 Eve in the, in the, I believe it's the fifth chapter of Genesis, it says their names were Adam. Their names were Adam. This is mm -hmm. why when people get married, the woman used to change the name to the man's name. Mm -hmm. But does that extricate, since she got the man's name, does that make her not being important? No. It's just that the man was made first and then the woman, and she takes on his name. So when it talks about making us kings and priests and priestess and, and, and queens, it is it is inclusive. When they talk about that, it's inclusive of the woman as well. Okay. All right. And with that, we are going to go to our next segment. Up next is Let's Talk About That. So, today in Let's Talk About It, I want to talk about Passover and eating the Passover lamb. Because I've heard that uh, some people have said that you don't fully take part of the Passover lamb uh, if you do not partake in eating of the lamb. And being that I'm a vegan and never ate meat in my life, uh, so am I missing out in not eating the lamb? So if you have your Bibles, let's go to the scriptures. We're going to read several passages out of Exodus 12, and then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians. And we're uh, going to look at Exodus 12, verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to go to 
First Corinthians five verses seven through eight. Again, that's Exodus twelve, uh, verses one through eleven. And it reads, And Yahweh spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Yasharel, saying, In the tenth day of the, this month they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Yea, shall it take it from out the sheep or from the goats. And ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two sides post and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his head with his legs and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is Yahuwah's Passover. Now if you turn with me, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 7 and 8. And it reads, Perch out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even the Messiah, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, with that, Pastor, um, when it comes to eating of the lamb on Passover, is that a necessary thing, or as it states in First Corinthians, that the Messiah was our Passover when he crucified, was crucified and died on the cross? So does, did he, in essence, he replaced the physical lamb? So is it a necessity that we should still be eating of the lamb during Passover? Well, let's let's kind of look at that in perspective because uh, there are many who who say that uh, in order to have a Passover, you must have a lamb, and if you don't have a lamb, mm -hmm. that you don't really have a a Passover service. But let, let's let's look at something that I think is uh, beneficial to be able to look at, and 
that's found in the book of Luke. Now, we're going to look in the book of Luke, and we want to look at a few verses there, and I'm going to use some other texts as well. We lose Luke chapter 2, and I want to start with verse 41. It says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was... 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Yeshua tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Well, the first part of it they're saying that they went up to Jerusalem almost every year for the Passover. Mm-hmm. Now, if you now, if you understand that when they even went to the temple to circumcise Yeshua, they didn't even have a lamb to circumcise him. Mm. So my point being is this. Number one, when they wanted to circumcise him, they didn't have a lamb. They had to bring a grain offering or something. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it in actuality, they are Yeshua was already the lamb of Elohim. Elohim, so they had the lamb. They they didn't really need to bring anything because he was the sacrifice himself. Okay. Now, when you look at the fact that when he was young and they didn't bring any lamb, then certainly when he was grown and about to be crucified, then let us turn to uh, Luke. And in Luke chapter 22, let's turn to Luke chapter 22. Now, here in Luke chapter 22, we want to look at verse number 19, Luke 22:19. Now, here, here's what it said. Now, this is when he was getting ready to celebrate one of the last Passovers with his disciples. And the Bible says in Luke 22:19, and he, Yeshua, took bread and gave thanks, and he broke it and gave it unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Okay, now, he is saying that the matzah, which was unleavened bread, Mm -hmm. he said, this is going to represent my body. Okay. Now, what was representing his body? What was representing his body before? Well, it was the lamb. When they they slayed that lamb, that lamb, I think we kind of dealt with that in our discourse today. Mm-hmm. When they slain the lamb, the lamb pointed toward the antitype. See, the lamb was the type, but the antitype was Yeshua. And when they killed the lamb, then the lamb had died for the people. But in Yeshua, that lamb represented him who had died for us. Okay. And once he died for us, then he was the one that we was looking for. Now, I'm going to point out two salient things that we have to look at mm-hmm. if we say we have to eat lamb. Two things. Okay. Number one, Yeshua himself, he said, from now on in the Passover meal, just like a lot of people say he did away with the day. He never did it, did not, done away with the day called Passover, mm-hmm. but he did do away with the, the Passover lamb. That was actually what was done away with at the cross, the lamb. Mm, okay, okay, so when he done, when he did away with the lamb, then he says, 
what's going to represent me now is not you literally eating that flesh, but when you take the wafer or when you take the unleavened bread mm-hmm. that it does not have commas, commas was leavened. He said, I want you to take the unleavened bread. And when you partake of that, you are partaking of body. You don't have to, you don't have to actually roast a lamb. Okay. He said, because this bread is going to represent my body. Okay. Okay. Now here's, now here's the crucial point. That was the first reason, but here's the second reason. And I think the second reason that I'm given would be more potent, more potent than the first reason is when he died on that cross, he became Elohim's lamb. Just like John the Baptist says, behold the lamb of Elohim that takes away the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. Now, when when he expired on that tree and he died, he became the lamb. Okay? Okay. Now, the reason why I said this is so potent is because the lambs that were killed in the Old Testament, they pointed to who? The true lamb, mm-hmm. which was Yeshua. So if you're saying I have to eat lamb, you're going back to the Old Covenant because Yeshua has come. And if I'm literally going to have to eat of the lamb, I would have to be accountable because the lamb only pointed to Yeshua. Mm-hmm. And once he pointed to Yeshua, then what happened? Yeshua said, yes, I'm the sacrifice, but from now on, you can represent my body by the bread. But moreover, since the lamb was not actually the real thing, that really gave you the redemption, and I was the one to give you the redemption, then if you get me by faith in me, you don't need you don't need to bring an animal here. You don't mm. need to bring a lamb because I'm what the lamb pointed to. I didn't come here to point back to the lamb. The lamb pointed to me, so therefore I have more credence than the lamb. I have more power than the lamb. If you're saying that you have to have a lamb, then you are saying, that I have to lift up a literal lamb to eat over me. Wow. He said, I made the lamb. Wow. I'm the one that created the lamb. Uh-huh. And I used the lamb to represent me. I did not use uh, uh, me to represent the lamb. The lamb represents me. I don't represent the lamb. So, no, I, I, you don't need a lamb. All you need is the bread, the unleavened bread to represent me. Because I am the one that the lamb pointed to. So during Passover, we should be partaking of the unleavened bread. We should have that Mm -hmm. during our meal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Unleavened bread. Mm -hmm. And so the unleavened bread, basically, when he said that has replaced the physical lamb. You know, because Mm -hmm. he was the lamb. Yeah, because if people if people say you got to have lamb at the Passover, then I would also say, well, if if that's the case, then you have to take the blood and put it on the doorpost too. Then true, because I mean they didn't only. I mean, if you're gonna follow literally right on down after Yeshua told you what his blood is gonna represent is by the the fruit of the vine, and my body is gonna be represented by the bread. Uh-huh. So if you're going to say you got to have a lamb, then you got to have some blood to put on the doorpost too. 
Now, oh, uh, after they came out of Egypt, did they still put door blood on the doorpost during that time, or hmm. did somewhere in dealing with the temple, did um, and the sacrificing of the lamb for sins, uh, and the blood sprinkled on the horns or whatever, did that kind of change to that? You know, it, it may have merged into the sanctuary uh, service that when they put the blood mm-hmm. on the horns and the different places in the sanctuary, it atoned for them. Mm-hmm. But nowhere do I read in the Old or New Testament that once they came out during that week of the unleavened bread, that they continued to put blood on the doorpost. Mm-hmm. So, too, I mean, were, were they, was there any other place outside of when they came out of Egypt where they partook in of the lamb during Passover? I don't, I don't read it in, 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 in scriptures. The only thing I read is that when the kings and the different people, they celebrated the Passover, mm-hmm. they did continue to kill, they did continue to kill, uh, kill lambs. Mm-hmm. But remember, Messiah had not come yet. Yeah. They were still pointing toward Messiah. Yeah. And when, when Messiah came, then Messiah said, basically, you can celebrate the Passover by unleavened bread. Now, they was already eating unleavened bread, but now he's saying the same bread that you were eating now is going to represent my body and the blood that you were sprinkling and putting it on the horns of the altar and all of that. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do that anymore. Just drink the grape juice. And when you do that, that celebrates my blood. So now let me ask this too. When it, when it, it is communion, um, is that stated in the Bible somewhere? I've never seen it in the Bible, but some people say at the service in which uh, Yeshua was instructing his disciples to uh, take the bread to represent his body and the fruit of the vine to represent his blood, uh-huh. that he was instituting a communion service. But the Bible never said it was a communion service. So is communion even something that should be done? Because I know I always hear communion associated with Catholicism and some other religions. And I'm just wondering if it's never, y'all never said it. And the, cause everything with the blood and the unleavened bread was during Passover. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I know you used to get taught that in the upper room, the Passover that they was going through that, that was communion, but was it really communion? They were celebrating Passover. Well, the upper room, that was on Pentecost. I'm not sure. Oh, that was on Pentecost. Yeah, that, that was Pentecost, but I mean, by the same token, what you're saying, mm-hmm. what you're saying is that in the Passover's to to come, I don't think they were uh, basically uh, celebrating a communion service. So, communion services, or something like uh, when 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 people uh, celebrate uh, some of the like like Christmas and stuff, and uh-huh. then they'll point out certain scriptures. But they they saying that these these uh, scriptures is pointing out Christmas, which is not. Yeah. It's like when Yeshua was born, the wise men and the shepherds they were not celebrating Christmas. Yeah. We have taken those scenes, and we we are saying that they are Christmas. That's yeah. what we're saying. The Bible didn't say that. Yeah. So when we deal with Passover, you know. A lot of things have been in, injected. As a matter of fact, is so if you look in Acts chapter 12, they actually list in there, since it was so tradition that 
people keep Easter, they actually had Easter in the Bible, mm. which they, you can read it right in the King James. They had Easter, and yet they are talking about Passover. And so wow. the scholars are recognizing that there was an era, there was an era that they have to call Passover Easter. In one place it's calling, they said after Passover, and then another place they talk about Easter. Uh-huh. Easter was not even in existence at the time. And so what I'm saying, people take scripture and they have taken traditions that for years we have practiced, but yet it's not come from the scriptures. Yeah. We have taken the scriptures and given it what we want to do and the way that we want to interpret it. And if we call it Easter or communion service and pass it on down from generation after generation, a lot of people accept it, but yeah. there's no biblical basis for it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't realize like with Easter, uh, as has a pagan background. I mean, if you just look a little bit and dig a little bit, you would find out Easter is to the goddess of Ishtar. And then I think somehow mm-hmm. it ends up going down to uh, some ties to Ashtara and how you had mm-hmm. the Ashtara poles, which repulsed Yahuwah and all. He would tell mm-hmm. them, turn, tear down those Ashtara poles and burn them up and all, you know. And, you know, people don't mm-hmm. realize that Easter has no biblical basis. It's all pagan. Same thing with Christmas. Mm-hmm. It's all pagan and all ties back to pagan Rome and people, you know, and people don't have to go far to find and dig these things out. And all with all this technology you have today, you can just Google it and all the information will pop up on it. But yes, still some reason we, as a people, we do not want to listen to what the scriptures say and listen to reason. We still want to do mm-hmm. what we want to do. It seems like. Yeah, well, we love our tradition, so yeah, we put tradition over the word. Yeah, and that's what Roman Catholicism. They say we, our tradition become come before the word, and they got a lot of things that the word doesn't say. But they say, since we go by tradition over the word, then we follow that first, and then the Bible second. Mm-hmm. And this is why we don't know how Martin Luther would have brought the Roman Church back to the Scriptures because the Scriptures are not first and foremost with them. Mm-hmm. So he, 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 he couldn't have gotten a reformation in the whole church. He could get followers to follow him, but if it came to uh, following the scriptures only, mm-hmm. he never would have converted or reformed the Catholic church because they put tradition over the Bible. Wow. Wow. Well, we want to go by the word the word only and not by all these traditions you know i think yah has outlined how we are to live our lives in his commandments his covenants his statutes and his judgments and that's all we need to live by and i think you know uh, as we progress and it seems like you know as we are starting to wake up to understand who we are in identity as a people, I think a lot of us are starting to return and to leave a lot of these pagan things and everything. 
So with that, Pastor, can you take us to the throne as we get ready to close out this podcast for this week? I love it, Father. We thank you for the discussion and this insight, Lord, that we gain from the questions. And as we continue to ponder the word, that we may be able to decipher and to make more clearly the truth that we believe. And our fathers will go throughout the rest of the Sabbath that you would bless us and keep us and do for us that which is needed. And my loved ones and those, O oh, Heavenly Father, who have experienced the shootings and the killings, O oh, Heavenly Father, of those who know not thee, O oh, Heavenly Father, and has, has been deranged in such a way, that you would comfort the comfortless and those, O oh, Heavenly Father, who have experienced the shock, O oh, Heavenly Father, of sudden catastrophes. Remember those who are sick and shed in, that thou would continue to restore health to those who are sick and to be able to give wholeness to those, O oh, Heavenly Father, that are not well. And may you comfort those, O oh, Heavenly Father, who have having separations and divorces and all of those things, Lord, that goes on in the family. And we know that in the last days, a lot more of these things and catastrophes will be happening. But help us to look to you to know that in the end, you will wipe away these things. But as we have to endure them, teach us how to do the things that you would have us to do and to be able to try to curtail things, oh, Heavenly Father, that you've given us premonitions on that we should not do. And as we continue to look to you and to go week by week, continue to walk in the way of sanctification and doing the things that you would have us to do, that we may become living witnesses to others, that we can be able to impress upon them that a better world is on the way. And even though we experience all of these atrocities and difficulties and dangers and unexpected killings and stuff, that we can still have hope in you to know that you will bring us through. And when it's all over and we look back, we can see how you have been able to lead us and give your name to praise. So bless us this day and the week ahead. In Yeshua's name, we do ask it. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. We want to remind you. Return. We look forward to having you back here in just a few days on April the 6th as we celebrate Passover. April the 6th, we're celebrating Passover at 5 p.m. April the 6th at 5 p.m. We look forward to having you. Also, remember, get rid of that leaven out of your home. Take it out, throw it out, use it up, cook it up, whatever you got to do now. All the bread, the yeast, and baking powder, baking soda, all that stuff. We got to get that out of our houses because we want to start with a clean slate as we go into Passover. That is our podcast for this week. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. All the paths of you who are mercy and truth unto such as to keep his covenant and his testimonies. Psalms 2510. Until next week. Shalom.